Chapter 4 of Douglas Duane. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Hickey. Douglas Duane by Edgar Fawcett. Chapter 4 My words were hardly true. I was not, in any real sense, glad to see Floyd Demotte again. Still, I was by no means sorry. We had been schoolmates from the age of about eleven to fourteen years, respectively. Afterward, our parents had separated us by sending us each to a different institution of learning, preparatory to our making the collegiate plunge. It was a queer school, that one of Mr. Gillespie Gordon's, and the intimacy which soon followed upon Demotte's reintroduction of himself in the dusty twilight of the bookshop, was perhaps first stimulated by the reminiscences which we could now mutually laugh over. No wonder our fathers took us away from it, I presently found myself saying to Floyd Demotte. We ought to be thankful that they got us away before all studious habits were completely killed in us. Mr. Gillespie Gordon was a New York dandy with a repute for scholarship among certain pleasure-loving people who could not have told you whether Hector was a Greek or a Trojan. Perhaps a few of them might have agreed with you if you had called him an American. Mr. Gordon Gillespie, finding himself with a depleted bank account, caressed the chronic rose in his buttonhole and mused as to the propriety of setting up a school. He had so many dear friends. They would be sure to give him a helping hand. And they did. But this is considerably more than Mr. Gillespie Gordon may be said to have done to their numerous boys. Our taste of discipline was about as bitter as the perpetual nibbling of a sugar-plum. Mr. Gordon pointed to us with pride as the delightful testimony of his friend's tender devotion, and whenever he most keenly realized how valuable a tribute we brought him from patrician circles, he would decree the entire school a half-holiday. With all his amiability and benignity, and I once thought him a seraph for both. He now appears to me, this highly aristocratic schoolmaster, very much more astute and self-centered than I could have then dreamed of supposing him. His indulgences to his pupils were the despair of every teacher he employed, and his whole system of educational superintendence was poor rear in the polite bad faith of its laxity. And yet he thus managed to have all the boys on his side, and they were wonderful preventives against his being ignominiously found out. It was always so pleasant for them to go on nibbling at the sugar-plum. "'That is why we all stayed on at Gordon's as long as we did,' I now said, laughing to Floyd Demont. "'We each of us constituted such a loving, selfish, and zealous little advertisement for the school. I remember I didn't dare tell my father how every boy one day received an orange, a banana, and an excuse from studying any lessons for the morrow.' because a certain ocean steamer which had been overdue about a week, and which carried some relatives of our dear magister, had at last come safely into port. I was afraid my father might object to such an extension of clemency on the ground of rank imposition. Which it certainly was, affirmed Demotte, with the same pleasant ring in his voice that I had liked years ago. Time had changed him for the better. He had been a rather lank and awkward boy, with hardly a facial line that did not err against beauty. But now he had acquired a really classic charm of expression that suited his almost commanding height. His pallor had lost the least unhealthy tint, 
and his eyes, always notable for their depth and their sea-blue sparkle, had become infused with a gently meditative light. His figure, growing taller, had smoothed away all its old angles into a blending of vigor and elegance. He was clad with a quiet art that made him look the gentleman as I could not have done if my life had been the forfeit of such failure. I am compelled just here to obtrude upon the reader this physical contrast between us for reasons which will later be fully understood. My visage was at all times a somber, homely, and unprepossessing one. No garment, however dexterously cut, could charitably disguise the stoop in my shoulders or the infelicitous modeling of my frame. But Floyd Demotte had the real bel air. Though he was far from resembling anything foppish, that you seemed to discern in him the scholar as quickly as you discerned the easy-going worldly saunterer, and that is assuredly no unfair way of describing his personality. But scholar, as I soon afterward learned, he was none. His craze for rare editions of books meant simply the dilettante and cultivated fad of a man who was refined enough by temperament to avoid those more frivolous diversions which are apt to accompany a copious income. What won me about him, now that we had met after the old boyish good fellowship had clothed itself in a memorial haze, was his perfect suavity of disposition, wed with a natural modesty and retirement. He was the son of a dead New York merchant who had left him conspicuously rich. Like myself, he avoided the aimless unrest of the pleasure lovers. Like myself, he was exempt from stupid vices. Like myself, he chose the silences of life's lanes and meadows rather than the turmoil of its thoroughfares. The rosy frenzies and intoxications had no lure for him. He was the most domestic and shade-seeking of spirits. But, wholly unlike myself, he was without the slightest dominating purpose. All that he appeared to ask of destiny was a comfortable and unharassed lease of existence. It struck me at first that he was almost wholly passionless, that so long as he could go on collecting his library and passing his days with a good digestion, a cheerful hearthstone, a commodious armchair, and a mellow-flavored cigar, he would remain an individual of unrivaled contentment. But while we slowly yet surely resumed the intimacy as men which as boys we had once sought and enjoyed with so different a zest, I began to note traits in Demotte till now unsuspected. It had already occurred to me that he was more than pleased whenever I dropped in upon him of an evening at the cozy little basement house in Second Avenue, which had been one of his manifold real estate bequests from his father and which he had chosen as a residence because of the reposeful old-time quarter in which it stood. He always welcomed me with a brightening of demeanor and a warm pressure of the hand, which I could not mistake. He would conduct me up to his beautiful library on the second floor of the house, above the dining-room, and would wheel forward a cushioned easy-chair for my convenience, revealing in every gesture his unmistakable gladness at my coming. The visits were not all on my side, however. I had left my apartments at the Albemarle several weeks ago, and had taken a furnished house in one of the side streets, not far from Madison Square, turning its entire upper story, which in no way resembled the traditional rude attic, into a laboratory supplied with many costly instruments of science. Here DeMott would in turn spend an hour or two with me, 
apparently attracted beyond expression by my discourses on chemistry, optics, the marvels of embryology, of heat, or perhaps of electricity, a study, this last, in which I had of late most appreciably advanced. But I, at length, began to notice that each of his visits always was paid only after one of my own upon himself, and that if I let too long a time elapse without seeking to see him, he would subsequently betray toward me that hurt sensitiveness which we are apt, very unjustly, to call feminine. Finally, the truth became quite clear to me. Demotte's was the jealous temperament in almost painful excess. Most extremely jealous people are essentially selfish, for this fault is one purely of egotism. But Demotte was far from selfish in his daily doings, and while not in any sense a religious man, gave away annual sums to the poor which many a millionaire of thrice his wealth would shrink from thus employing. This one regrettable failing seemed to exist isolated in a nature of much intrinsic sweetness and honesty. For him to love a fellow creature was for him to demand, exact, and even self-tormentingly to watch the object of such affection. Good heavens, I remember thinking, what will become of this man if he ever falls in love? And what sort of an existence will the woman's be, should she marry him without previously having found him out au juste? As it was, I humored him in his failing, and hardly liked him any the less for it. I had hitherto been capable of winning a certain amount of personal adherence, and even of allegiance. But to win a friendship based purely on sentiment rather than admiration, there seemed to me a truly golden achievement, and one fraught with its own reward. I had grown to regard everything with the eyes of science alone, and I could not help thinking of this flaw in Floyd Demotte's character as of a distinct flaw in the structure of his brain. How deplorable it was, I told myself, that with all my amassed scientific erudition I had no possible power of looking upon his optic thalamus, or searching his corpus striatum, while both were still informed with life. What splendid results of remedy might spring from investigation like that? Perhaps something resembling it will one day replace the mere empirics of our present medical men. It seems odd enough to talk of curing a man of jealousy as you would cure him of a bilious attack, of eradicating avarice from his mind as if it were a tooth taken from his jaw, of lopping away from his brain a depraved impulse as if it were a shattered limb from his body. And yet this was my point of survey for looking upon all moral questions. Evil was to me disease. Good was health. I found in Demotte a tireless listener. You are teaching me to think, he said one evening in my attic. That is pleasant to hear, <laughs> I answered, laughing. But please don't imagine that I rank my instructive powers in such direction as anything but excessively meager. Come now, Douglas, said my companion in his smoothly genial way. You know that you've gone into the roots of things with an astonishing amount of penetration. I smiled. You mean that I love science, Floyd? I mean a great deal more than that. You're positively fierce in your radicalisms. Only comparatively so, I responded. It's a curious age, this nineteenth century of ours, which we call, by the by, the nineteenth, when it's more probably the fifty-millionth. How curious! It is so abysmally divided. There's such a gulf between the idealists and the realists, between the old men and the new men, 
between those who believe themselves endowed with an intuition that transcends matter and those who face matter in the reverential spirit of searchers after a clue amid its monstrous labyrinth of facts. You sometimes give a strikingly poetic turn to your phrases, Demotte said, watching me for a moment with a look where fondness and a certain sadness appeared to blend. And yet the position you have taken is one so antagonistic to all that is spiritual, all that is imaginative. I was on the verge of adding, my friend, all that is higher and finer in either philosophy or metaphysics as to I deny it came my interruption, delivered with not a little heat, though without a shade of annoyance. There was never a more silly fallacy than that which rests in the charges urged by orthodoxy against science. It is perpetually crying out that we, the friends and devotees of pure knowledge, vivisect the nightingale and anatomize the rosebud. And suppose we do. Which is a more impious act toward that unknowable agency these pietists name God and we name unsolved mystery? To assert the nightingale and the rose a divine offspring of some celestial beauty? Or to use upon the developments of natural law, which we see in either, such forces of intelligence as nearly all mankind commonly possess? For my part, I am convinced that civilization is merely the destruction of ignorance. But ignorance forever remains. It may not forever remain. My friend started. You can't intend to even suggest, Douglas, that science, after shattering countless ideals, or superstitions, if you prefer terming them so, will ever pass beyond the limit of final causes. It may pass beyond the limit of what we term such. Who shall dare affirm to the contrary? The telegraph, the railway, the steamship, would have seemed like realized miracles a century ago. But these discoveries, great as they are, deal only in matter. My slight laugh just then must have had a very ironical ring. Has it ever occurred to you, I said, that matter is the be-all and end-all of the whole immense perplexing scheme? Demotte shuddered. Carlyle's words come into my memory, he murmured. I know what you're going to quote, I hurriedly broke in that flimsy little epigram of his about Darwinism being the gospel of dirt. Now, to my mind, Carlyle was a shallow shrieker, and, as all such men are, a sworn foe against the very progress and advancement of which he made so bombastic an apostle. Whenever a great truth is laboring for birth, some hostile conservative tries to invent a chilling and contemptuous mot about it. Oh, that gospel of dirt! how it has been echoed from one pulpit to another throughout all Christendom. It saved such an extraordinary amount of honest thinking. It had so protective and preservative a sound for those who still put faith in the legendary melodrama of Adam and Eve and the garrulous bugaboo serpent. No wonder it was popular. But in reality, if taken with a serious and not a flippantly jocose meaning, it condensed a greater truth than Carlyle's turbid and irascible intellect could ever have lighted on. Modern science, if you please, is the gospel of dirt. It isn't ashamed to be either. Dirt really means the planet, the telus itself, the habitable globe. And I have never yet been able to learn that the rhapsodists about a less prosaic biding place were successful, after all, in securing a more trustworthy one than this. These conversations of ours, said Demont, musingly and after a little pause, all lead me into one belief. I have never put the direct question to you before, but I put it now. 
Do you, Douglas Duane, place the least faith in the doctrine of immortality? None, I answered. I was sure of what I should hear you say, DeMott murmured. But do you deny immortality, then? Science never asserts nor denies without proof. The moment she does either, she ceases to be science and becomes something very much more intelligible and valuable, no doubt, but still not herself. I mean, sentimentality. How those arrows of your sarcasm sing whenever you make the immaterial their target. Well, then granting that as a reasoner you neither deny nor assert a future life, had you not just confessed something quite too arbitrary a moment before? And this was? That you failed to place the least faith in immortality. Personally, I do, came my swift words, for here was the sort of discussion in which at nearly all times I took the keenest pleasure. A lawyer might glance over the plaintiff's evidence in a certain difficult case without attempting to study it. He might say therewith, that on general principles he thought the case likely to be won by the defendant. Such a cursory and superficial scrutiny would scarcely produce anything like an important decision. But if the lawyer had studied the case, insisted Demont, why not put it in that way? No lawyer has, I said, smiling, at least not to the slightest purpose. A great many think they have, and worse still, a great many know they have not, and yet for the ecclesiastical salaries they draw, preach Sunday after Sunday what they themselves secretly discredit. And I'm sorry to say that this monstrous hypocrisy increases in our era of skeptical inquiry at a fearful rate. But good heavens, I broke off, what are we doing? We have mixed our simile in a sad way. We have confused lawyers with clergymen. That will never do, will it? And yet I have met more than one clergyman who seemed to me like the wreck of a good lawyer. You wander from our subject, said Demott, eyeing me now as if he would read in my face more than I was choosing to let it convey. Perhaps you have done so intentionally, however, he went on. You mean that I wanted to evade your cross-examination? Yes, I fancied you did. Then you were not altogether wrong. I dislike to shock others needlessly. Still, in this instance, you would, as it were, have exploded the bombshell yourself. Then you have another announcement in reserve? If you choose to hear it, yes. I do. Does it concern the mortality of what we call the soul? Yes. I rose and drew near a magnificent new electrical apparatus, which I had just ordered home to my laboratory. I laid one hand caressingly upon the instrument. It concerns the discovery of a proof, a law relating to such mortality. DeMotte started to his feet. Good God, Douglas! he exclaimed. You can't mean that you hope ever to go as far as that. As far as that? I repeated, looking steadily into his agitated face. My dear Floyd, I have not yet told you how far I hope to go. Demotte answered my look in a fascinated way. Suddenly an expression of mixed alarm and pain swept over his face. Oh, Douglas, he cried. Beware, be careful. Of what? I asked calmly. Of too great, too insolent a daring, he asseverated with an excitement and a speed of utterance for which I was unprepared to see so abrupt and yet vivid a betrayal. God will punish one who... But, uh, you don't believe in a God. How can you when you don't believe in the everlasting life of the soul? Only, Douglas, I... I would say this. Don't let too strong a pride in your own great intellect master you with too absolute a sway. Pardon me, but I can't help recalling to you something which you, of course, have read. By this time, Demotte tremulous and eager, had drawn close to my side, 
and had laid one hand on my shoulder. It is that most magnificent part of all, Milton's poem, that which deals, I mean, with the ambition, the ruin, and the overthrow of Satan. Satan! <laughs> I echoed with a contemptuous laugh. Oh, he's a theatrical personage enough, and the whole story of man's first disobedience is only saved to my mind from being ludicrous. Even as Milton tells it, by the rolling and stately blank verse in which it is enshrined. Still, Floyd, that doesn't prevent your having ranked me with anybody so abominable as this mythical Satan from being highly uncomplimentary. I was not thinking of compliments or the reverse, said Demont, as if he almost resented the levity of my final sentence. I alluded only to the boldness of revolt which you have just suggested. Revolt, my friend? Against what? against that which must forever lie hidden from man until death brings him a revelation of it. Ah, that is the way they talked to Galileo, and yet he insisted on telling us that the earth moved. Demotte had grown pale. I saw distinctly that I had somehow impressed him more than I had faintly imagined that I could do by the somewhat random nature of my recent utterances. But this discovery, he queried, do you actually aim at anything as... As appalling as you have implied, I grasped his hand and shook it warmly. Upon my word, I said, you are more than stimulating. I, he asked, with a little perplexed recoil from me, how? Oh, you think me capable of doing something brilliant beyond description before you have heard a word of what I meditate performing. There is so much in that. I think you a man of supreme ability, he returned with a positive accent of awe. But men of supreme ability, like yourself, are sometimes entrapped and, and betrayed by their own powers. Entrapped and betrayed, I repeated, with perhaps a new and rather harsh note in my voice. Into what, pray? Into punishment for their audacity, Demont faltered. I began to see his drift, or to fancy that I did so. I drew backward from him further than he had receded from me. "'What sort of punishment?' I inquired. "'Madness,' he said under his breath. "'Oh, Douglas, banish from your mind the least supposition that by any chance you or any man living or to live hereafter can—' "'Madness!' I shot in, with as cold a tone as I have possibly ever used. I at once turned my back upon him. For a few seconds I felt myself despising and detesting him. Then I turned again— after I had got my leaping anger under full control, and said with what was doubtless a cutting curtness, A little while ago you accused me of wandering from our subject, and I confessed that I did so voluntarily. I now insist that the subject be changed, since I also insist that you have shown yourself unable to treat it with either good sense or common courtesy. Pray, let us never refer to it again. He bit his lip and his mild eyes flashed a little, but I had imposed silence upon him as regarded a single topic, however wounded my uncompromising words had made him feel. But I too had been deeply wounded, and that single word, madness, applied to a man whose brain was so collected and equable, as I realized my own always to have been, wrought upon me for a long time afterward, like the residuary sting of an insult. End of chapter 4